The following sermon is brought to you by New Covenant Community Church, a Bible-based church located on Route 62 east of Johnstown, Ohio. To learn about New Covenant Community Church, visit www.new-covenant.org. Again, that is new-covenant.org. Now, enjoy the message. Good morning, church. I feel like that was such a, an appropriate song for, uh, it's been a crazy couple of weeks for me and for Abby and for you all, but especially I think of Clyde and Scott and your families having lost loved ones this over the past couple of weeks. Um, I would encourage you that, I'll ask you the question rather, will Christ be enough for you? Will Christ be enough for us in seasons when things are just difficult? And that is my prayer for all of us this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, please turn to Luke chapter 7. I'll give us a moment to get there. Luke chapter 7. Once you're there, uh, leave your Bible open to that spot. Place your bookmark there. Whatever you need to do to make sure you can get back to that spot quickly. I want to be careful with the time that we have this morning. And uh, when we open God's Word and we read and, and we get to the sermon, I want that to be the total focus. I don't want us to be distracted by anything else. So uh, in hopes of doing that, there's, there are two things that I want to mention before I get to God's Word. Uh, and these are things that I just think are going to help us focus in this morning. Uh, the first is simply my view of the church or my philosophy of ministry. I think these are some things that might just help you get a better understanding of who I am and how I minister uh, and these are in no particular order, and there's certainly much overlap between all of these things. But these are things, in case we didn't get a chance to have this dip, deep of a discussion yesterday or in the previous times that I've met some of you, uh, this is just in hope to help you get to know me a little bit uh, this morning. So number one, a church must be about the business of glorifying God and honoring God. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 says, whether you eat or drink, Whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So the church must be about glorifying God. Uh, number two, a church must be about the business of upholding Scripture uh, as, as God's inerrant, infallible, inspired Word. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. And we must be, the church must be about the business of upholding Scripture as God's holy and errant word. Number three, a church must be about disciple making. A church simply cannot be an obedient church unless it is positioned as such and focused on disciple making. We cannot fill, fulfill what Jesus commanded us in Matthew chapter 28 when he said to teach everyone all the things that I've commanded you. We must be about the business of disciple making and teaching people about the things that Jesus commanded. Number four, a church must be a gospel preaching church. The attitude of the pulpit ought to be one like it was when John the Baptist said that he must increase and I must decrease. A church must be about gospel preaching, about preaching the good news. Number five, a church ought to be family oriented. Uh, a church ought to be not just a place where people check in once a week, uh, but a place where people come together and where they fulfill what Romans 12 says, where it says to outdo each other and showing each other honor. A family-oriented place, a place where we are family together, taking care of each other's needs and being truly concerned 
about each other. Number six, a church must be committed to missions. Again, a church simply cannot be an obedient church unless it is positioned such and focused as the missional mindset of fulfilling the great commission that Jesus gave us uh, to, 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 to long for and to desire to send and to go and to, to be light in the community and in the world around us to take the message of Christ to all people. And lastly, uh, number seven, a church ought to be a people a prayer, an asking people, a seeking people, a knocking people, people that are acquainted with how to pray and praying often about all things with thanksgiving, letting our requests being made known to God. So those are just the first, that's the first thing, the collection of those things is the first thing I'd like to mention. And the second thing I'd like to mention, and then we'll get to God's word, is uh, I know this is a very different morning for you. And I assure you that this is a very different kind of morning for me too. Uh, but my prayer as we were driving over here this morning, my prayer is that the things that I'm sure you're wondering and the things that I know I'm wondering, that those things would take care of themselves in time and that it would be enough for us as God's children just to lift the name of Christ together as we look at God's Word. So if you're already there, you're in Luke chapter 7, I invite you to look down to verse 36. And we'll read our text for this morning. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. 36. It says, Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table of the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with the tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. If you believe this is God's word, say amen. And let's pray together. Father, God, it would be enough for us to look at your word this morning and to see how wonderfully marvelous you are among us. 
And God, I just pray that that would be true for our hearts, that we would remove the distractions and focus on You in a way that would honor You, God. In a way that it would be a, a, a pleasing scent of fragrance in Your nostrils. That it would be honoring and glorifying to Your name. Let all that we say, do, and think magnify You this morning. It's in Jesus' name we do pray. And everybody says, Amen. You know, I can remember uh, years ago, um, I grew up on a farm, like I know many of you did, and uh, we had a lot of animals, but one, the animal that we had the most of was, were goats. And we would take these goats, grew up in 4-H, so we would show goats at the fair, and we would take them to all different county fairs for open shows to take our goats and show them at all these different fairs and whatnot. And, uh, and I had something, I had a goat on the farm that gave birth to a picture-perfect goat. Isn't that a resume builder? I mean, this goat was just, uh, it was, it was, when they take, when you take a goat to a goat show, they're judging it based on its body conformation, the length and the straightness, straightness of its legs and its neck and all these different things about the animal. And this was a picture perfect goat. It was for certain going to be a blue ribbon winner, except it had one sometimes disqualifying defect. For whatever reason, when this baby goat was in the mother's womb, its top jaw grew longer than the bottom jaw, creating what I know many of you probably know in the world of livestock, it's called parrot mouth. And in goat shows, this can sometimes completely disqualify you from the show. But I didn't care much about the blue ribbon. You know, I was a young boy at the time, and, and this was my pet. So I just wanted to go to the fair, take the pet in the trailer, and, and take him to the county fairs and, and, and get a funnel cake while we're in the process of it. And... Uh, so I take this goat to this show, and I'm waiting to go into the ring, waiting for my class, and a family friend who had gotten my family involved in showing goats comes up to me, and she says, when you take this goat into the ring, hold your hand up underneath its jaw, and maybe the judge won't see. Now at the time, I did not think that this was a deceitful thing to do, because in 4-H, you may have seen this at the Hartford Fair, there will be a group of, of exhibitors and sometimes you'll be judged on your own knowledge and they're not judging the goat, they're judging you. And it's your job to show off the best attributes of this goat. And that's what I thought I was doing, so I didn't think it was a deceitful thing. And lo and behold, it worked. The, the, the placing lineup comes and I'm second to the front. I'm in line to get the red place second ribbon that day. The judge goes back to her table, she picks up the microphone and she's getting ready to give her list of reasons to the audience of about 20 or 25 folks as to why she's placing these goats the way that she is. And before she gives her reasons, she looks at me, she sets the microphone back down, walks up to me and says, son, remove your hand from where your hand is underneath that goat's jaw. And I did. And she sends me back down to the end of the line, <laughs> to the second to the last. She goes back to the table, picks up the microphone. She gives her reasons of why she placed the goats the way that she did. She gets all the way down to me, and before she says anything about my goat, she, my, my picture-perfect parrot-mouthed goat, she picks up the microphone. She goes, I want to embarrass this young man in front of all that are here. She says, this, this young man is a disgrace to the sportsmanship of goat showing. This young man is a disgrace to this county fair. He's dishonest, and if I could give him last place, I would. But he's got a picture-perfect goat. <laughs> Except for that one disqualifying piece. And I took that goat back to the pen and I cried. Oh, I was so embarrassed. I couldn't believe. I, and in my mind as a child, I thought there were thousands of people in the stands. There were probably 20. But I was so embarrassed. I cared so deeply. I was, I was, I was, my soul was shaken, if you know what I mean. And, uh, and why is that? 
why that same notion that I had as a young boy, I think all of us have in this room today, and it's simply that overwhelmingly strong desire to fit in and to live in such a way as if we were living before an audience of all of our peers, hoping always to fit in, hoping never to cause a ruckus or to be the outlier. There's always this strong desire to fit in with everyone else around us and to live in such a way that the whole world is our audience. Uh, even secular psychologists, they have a term for this. They call this social conformity. And it simply describes that overwhelmingly strong feeling to fit in. And you might say, Pastor Ben, why is this important? And the reason this is important is because the Bible has much to say about the dangers and even eternal dangers for the unsaved person of living in such a way that you're pleasing the crowd around you. Here's what I mean, and you can jot down these verses to look them up later. I'm going to go through them rather quickly. Proverbs 13, verse 20 says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. Proverbs 25, verse 26 a righteous man who falters before the wicked is like a murky spring and a polluted well. Psalm 1 verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the paths of sinners, nor sits in the seats of scornful. Matthew 7 verses 13 through 14 says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many, everyone say many, who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few, everyone say few, and there are few who find it. So apparently, it is incredibly dangerous, and even for the unsafe person, eternally dangerous, to be a crowd pleaser, to submit to that overwhelming feeling that we have to fit in and live before this audience of all of our peers and everyone that's watching, so what I'm going to submit to you this morning, church, is that the right way, the biblical way, the way that is so clearly outlined in Scripture is to live for an audience of one, to block out the views and the opinions of everyone else and to live for the audience of one, one being Christ, to only look to him, to only consider what he says and what he Thanks. And in Luke chapter 7, we have this incredible ex example of a woman who does just that. There are four truths that I believe Scripture highlights for us that we're going to extrapolate and pull out of Scripture to see how it applies to our lives. And I'll give you them as we take chunk by chunk. So if you would, look down back to 36, verse 36 of Luke chapter 7. We'll take it piece by piece. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a yene polis hamartlos, Greek for a woman in the city who was a sinner. We'll discuss that in a moment. When she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet, and anointed them, with fragrant oil. The first truth, if you're taking notes and writing down, this is the first thing you can write down. Number one, living for an audience of one goes against cultural norms. Living for an audience of one goes against cultural norms. And here's what we mean by this. 
in this story thus far of what we know is this woman was not invited to this dinner party. Kind of like it is today, not acceptable to show up to a party you're not invited to. It was totally unacceptable. It was totally not culturally normal to show up to a party that you're not invited to, and she does. She is a sinner, and more than just that she's a sinner, like in the fact that you and me are sinner in the Romans 3.23 sense, she's a sinner, she's a homartulus, which in other places of Scripture is the same word used to describe work of prostitution. So we know that she is a sinner like all of us, but more specifically, she is a prostitute, and she's in a Pharisee's home, a religious leader's home, a rabbi's home. This is totally not done. This is like a square peg through a round hole. This is totally not supposed to happen, totally not a cultural norm. She is touching the feet of Jesus. This was a time and in a day when women were not even supposed to walk through a doorway side by side with a man. They were supposed to let the man go first and then walk through. They were only supposed to speak when spoken to. And this woman is weeping. She is touching Jesus' feet. She is pouring this oil, this oil this fragrant oil out of an alabaster flask the jar itself would have been expensive the oil inside would have been used as perfume in her work for prostitution and she's pouring it out on jesus feet if you were sitting at this table this was no small thing you could see her coming in and standing behind jesus you could hear her weeping you could feel the presence of her in the room and Jesus could feel her wiping her, his feet with the, head of her, the hair of her head and, and you could smell on the aroma of the air the fragrant oil that she's pouring out on Jesus' feet. This is, this is totally unnormal. And I wonder sometimes to myself, what was it about her that caused her like a bull just to charge straight through the cultural norms and drive her to the feet of Jesus? And I think it's clear in this story thus far, we know that she's weeping and she's She's pouring this oil that she would have used for perfume out on Jesus' feet. And, and it was her sin that caused her to be driven to the feet of Jesus and to repent in this radical way and to push aside all the opinions and the cultural norms of those around her. And it made me ask the question in my own life, and I hope it makes you ask the question as well, does your sin drive you to the feet of Jesus in a way that causes you to live different? And I raise my hand first when I say that this is convicting to me. And here's why this is such an important question in our day and age today. It's because it is culturally normal when you're at a work party and everyone else after work is drinking and making themselves drunk, which we clearly know in Scripture is a sin. It's normal just to go along with and be part of that cultural norm. It's normal when you're talking with your friends or family, whoever, and the topic of abortion comes up for you just to, well, it's just a, it's just a clump of cells anyway, and it's just just to feed us and 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 it's normal just to nod your head knowing that the scriptures say differently it's normal in conversation the most hot button topic of our culture today homosexuality when you know nature just proves itself of god's creation and his intention for his creation and it's totally normal to just nod your head what's wrong with two people loving each other it's normal for young people just to think that fornication is now the norm nobody else keeps themselves pure to marriage just you got to just live together before you're married and you have to see if it's going work and those things are it's normal to be greedy there's so many cultural norms that are just so infused and woven into the fabric of our culture of who we are when living for an audience of one goes against those things living for an audience of one being driven to the feet of jesus because of our sin will cause us to be different 
To live in opposition of the cultural norms. Living for an audience of one goes against cultural norms. Now I'll say before I move on simply that not all cultural norms are bad. It's culturally normal to shower. Praise the Lord, okay? So, but, but more times than not, we know with discernment that more times than not, as it pertains to morality, the cultural norm goes in opposition of God's Word. And my hope for you and for me this morning is that we are inspired, like this woman was, to live for an audience of one. If you would please look to verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. She is a hamartalos. She is a prostitute. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. This is the second truth that we will extrapolate as it applies to our lives through the story. Number two, our love for the audience of one is tied directly to our recognition of canceled debt. Bit of a mouthful. Our love for the audience of one is tied directly to our recognition of canceled debt. And you say, Pastor Ben, how do we recognize our canceled debt? To which I would say, I'm so glad you asked. Notice just a few basic fundamental things of truth out of Scripture that, that bring this awareness of our sin and what it means to us. First, we recognize that there is a creditor. In this parable that Jesus gives, the equation is that the creditor is God. When God made creation in the book of Genesis, He made it all good and it was perfect. And there was this perfect union between Adam and Eve and God. And God would walk with them in the cool of the morning. And, and sin had not infected the world as we see it today. And, and God is the creditor. Everything was good. We are the debtors. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The debtors, you and I, we have nothing, nothing, nothing with which to repay. We have a negative account balance and we don't even have ability to make money. We have nothing with which to repay. I'm not going to ask everyone to do this, but if I were to ask everyone to stand up and I would say, all right, on the count of three, we're going to jump and we're all going to touch the ceiling. One, two, three, jump. And we would all jump. And I may jump higher than some of you, and some of you may jump higher than me, but the point is, is that every single one of us would fail miserably, all on different levels. This is the way that Scripture puts it. Isaiah 64, verses 5-6, through 6, it, puts, it teaches this principle this way, and that we have nothing with which to give back to God. Nothing with which, with which we can work to pay back our debt of sin. Isaiah 64, verses 5-6, through six, it says, You meet Him, God meets Him, who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. 
Now, if we were to stop right there, that can sound like incredible news. God meets him who does righteousness and rejoices. Like that can sound like incredible news. Whoever remembers God in his ways, that God meets that kind of person. And that can sound like good news, except for the fact that Romans 3, verses 10 through 12, Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3, and Psalm 53, verses 1 through 3, all teach that there is none good, no, not even one. There are none who seek after God. And this is why it goes on in verse 5 of Isaiah 64. It says, You are indeed angry because we have sinned, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue. And I love these next few words. It says, And we need to be saved. And I wish, church, if I can just go on a rant for a moment, I wish so badly that the message from the American pulpit today told the whole truth. Because the message from the American pulpit today is that God is a loving God. And it is true. He is love. He encompasses the very essence of love. That God is a merciful God. And yes, that's true. God is merciful. His mercies are new every morning. But the whole truth is that we need a Savior. That our sin has infected us and this world in a way that we cannot pay anything back. And we need someone to make it right. And His name is Jesus Christ. Look to verse 6 of Isaiah 64. It says as we continue, but we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. It's saying like a dry, crumpled up leaf just dropped into the wind. That's what our iniquities, that's what our sin has done. So in recognizing our debt, our love for the audience of one is directly tied to our recognition of canceled debt. The debtors, you and me, are elated because The creditor, being God, freely forgives those who repent and trust in Him. So church, what I'm saying to you this morning, don't forget in in, in your walk of living for an audience of one, of just you and Jesus, and modeled by this woman in this incredible story in Scripture, don't forget your canceled debt. Don't forget the hell that you were marching towards until Christ saved you. Our love for an audience of one is directly tied to our recognition of canceled debt. I can remember when I started seminary, now almost three years ago, I'll be finished this December. Uh, Some of my professors were uplifting and encouraging, and they really helped me in ministry in a lot of ways. There were other professors that I had that there was just something not right. There was this there was this cold deadness to the way that they had talked about Christ. And, and I don't know if it was because they had been teaching for so many years, but they would talk about Christ as if they were talking about whether or not they wanted butter or jelly on their toast. It was just this dry, uninvolved thing that they taught about. They had so intellectualized the cross and redemption and, and, and mercy and grace and faith that they just talked about it like it was some stupid thing. And I remember talking to Abby about this when I first started seminary, and I said, I mean, I, a prayer has to be for me. I, I have to pray daily for my own self. Lord, never let me lose my tears. Never let me lose my zeal. Never let me forget my canceled debt. Let that recognition always be in my heart. And can I just tell you, church, because of God's power and graciousness and mercy, the cross still moves me. It still moves my heart. It still shakes my soul. I still, ah. 
What mercy He has shown sinners who had nothing to offer. What grace He's looked upon us with. For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Praise be unto God that He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Look to verse 44. It says, Then He turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. The third truth that we can jot down if we're taking notes to recognize is that living for an audience of one compels us to serve Jesus radically. And we know this, looking at this story, we know from this woman that at the very least, this, this act of her repentance, this act of her coming to Jesus and, and living for an audience of one, pushing aside all the cultural norms of all the people that are going to think these certain things about her, and coming to Jesus like this and pouring this oil out and serving Him radically in this way, we can know for certain that this was no cakewalk. At the very least, this woman suffered embarrassment, great embarrassment and a total loss of livelihood. I think of Zacchaeus back in Luke chapter 19. You remember him, he's the short-statured man who climbed the tree. He couldn't see over the crowd, so he climbed the tree. Jesus comes to him and says, I'm having supper with your house today. And he comes down, and the Bible says Zacchaeus received him joyfully. Jesus goes to his house, and, and Zacchaeus is he's repentant of his sins of having been a robber from all these people being a tax collector. And he pays back four times what he's stolen, which equated to about half of all that he owned. You don't think his CPA looked at him a little crazy during tax season? I mean, this was, this was no small matter. This was a radical response of repentance, of, of just pouring it all out, just giving it all to Jesus, and then just living for an audience of one and serving Him radically in this way. So the question I have for you and for me again also is, how has God called us to serve Him radically jesus says in matthew 16 verses verse 24 he says for if anyone desires to come after me let him deny himself take up his cross and follow me what that tells me at the very most basic level there's many deeper things that we could get into there but the ba very basic level there is that to follow jesus very well may and very likely will cause us to sacrifice some things and for this woman, it was her life, lifestyle and her livelihood. For Zacchaeus, it was his, his way of being a thief from all the people who he was a, he was a chief tax collector and he robbed from people. It was, there was some sacrifice involved. So I just ask you to answer the question in your heart. When we consider that living for an audience of one compels us to serve Jesus radically, what is it that He has called you to sacrifice? What was your cross that you had to pick up and carry to follow Him? How did you deny yourself to follow Him? Because every example of true repentance that we have in the Bible, somebody denied themselves of something. 
And my conviction this morning is simply that it's something I've learned, I learned early in ministry, is that someone who's not living for an audience of one that still cares about what everyone else thinks, and those, that's a person who probably isn't denying themselves. They're probably not taking up a cross to follow Him. And notice just very quickly before we move on in the two examples we've looked at of Zacchaeus and this woman out of Luke chapter 7. Notice what radical service of him and living for an audience of one. Notice what this radical service to Jesus brought them. How, how amazing is it that Jesus tells this parable to the Pharisee and then he looks at this woman and, and this woman hears from the very lips of the Son of God, she hears him say, your sins are forgiven. What a gift that that woman had. When Zacchaeus was, Jesus was in the house of Zacchaeus and, and Zacchaeus had obviously freely repented and, and, and gave half of his money away and had given back to all that he had stolen from. Jesus says, looks at Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus hears in his ears from the lips of the Son of God Himself, Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. What a gift. What a gift being close to Jesus in this radical service of Him brings. Look to verse 49. And at this time, as I get ready to close, Brian, if you would come and play for us, please. Verse 49. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The fourth and final truth that we'll pull from Scripture to, to, to let it be a, a guide to us today. Number four, living for an audience of one brings about peace. Living for an audience of one. It's, it's no longer what everyone else thinks and your friends and your peers and your coworkers and fitting in these cultural norms that make you feel uncomfortable. It's just you and it's Jesus. It brings about a peace when you don't have to care anymore. It's just you and him, I can remember when Daisy was born now just a little bit over a year ago. She was born and she got to meet her daddy. And uh, she was like six days old. And, you know, it took her no time at all to get used to the comfort of what being held was like. And I loved holding her. And, and there was one day, she was like six days old, I think. And it was nighttime and there's this little crib mattress thing between her mother and I on the bed. And, and Daisy, her diaper had been changed. She was fed. She was comfortable. She had everything she needed, but she was just kind of like she's been around here. She was just fussing, just fussy, just, <laughs> it was like her frustrated breathing. And I, and I picked her up and I pulled her close and I leaned back on the pillow and she goes, six days old, she goes, <sighs> I mean, she was like a fat man on a hot day that found a shade tree. She was so, she was like, <sighs> just a totally relaxed and just, church, when we're born again, it takes no time at all for us to know what it's like to be close to our Father. And living for an audience of one, being close to Him brings about great, great peace. So to recap just very briefly, living for an audience of one goes against cultural norms. Our love for the audience of one is tied directly to our, to our canceled debt. Don't forget what God has saved you from, church. Living for an audience of one compels us to serve Him radically and with everything we have. 
living for an audience of one brings about great, great peace. Would you stand with me? I know there's so many examples in this story that I have fallen so incredibly short of. And uh, I'm just going to pray that the Holy Spirit has been moving among our hearts. and Because the Holy Spirit's the only one that convict people anyway. So my prayer is that in your walk of, of living for an audience of one, this is something we grow in. This is something in sanctification that we grow in our walk with Jesus of continually putting fuzz and a blurring around the faces of everyone else and just seeing Jesus with more clarity and following Him with a closeness and a passion like we never had before. It's something we grow in. So my prayer this morning is that the Holy Spirit has convicted each of us and spoken to us individually of, of what it means for us individually to begin living more in an audience of one and not of co-workers and friends and our peers. And I also want to invite, I, I know many of you, but I don't know many of you well. I don't know any of you very well at all. And I just, I could not preach a message like this unless I also gave a gospel invitation of saying, if you don't know this peace, if you don't know what it's like to be forgiven of your sins like this woman and like Zacchaeus and, and all of us who know the forgiveness of Christ and you don't know what it's like to be, to be close to the Father and for Him to tell you that your sins have been forgiven, if you don't know what that's like, and be sincere. Be sincere in your heart. Don't fool around. Be sincere with who you are and, and looking in your heart's mirror to know who it is that you truly are. If you don't know who that is, and I, I beg you, I plead with you to either talk to me or one of the other leaders in the church to ask about Christ and let, and let them share deeper with you in God's Word of what it means to become a child of God. So, as Brianna plays and sings for us, um, this altar time is open for prayer of, of any prayer need that you have. And my prayer is, is if you feel like the Holy Spirit has convicted you in your heart, I'm not trying to manipulate anyone's emotions here, but, but my, my encouragement to you is to either come forward and pray or to pray in your seat, but to pray sincerely. Not games, not church games, but sincerely between you as the created being and God, your Creator, an audience of one.